Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm James Schofield, the writer of the stories in this podcast, Behind the Bottom Line. Over the years, I've written lots of short stories for different magazines about the funny, sad, and strange people and events I've experienced in business. In each episode, I read you my original story, and afterwards I tell you something about the real-life background which inspired it. Today's episode is called The Fortune Teller. And while you're listening, maybe ask yourself, if you wanted to predict the future, how would you do so? The Fortune Teller Simon Cassandra jumped out of a London taxi into a rainy street behind Piccadilly and hurried into Frederick Hobbs, Gentleman's Barber and Toiletries, established 1781. A bell rang as he entered the shop, but Simon ignored the colognes, soaps and shaving equipment on the ground floor and went down the steps to where Mr. Camille, the barber, was reading The Sporting Life and waiting for him. Evening, sir, said Mr. Camille, taking Simon's coat and sitting him down in one of the old-fashioned green leather barber chairs. Very quiet today. I think everybody's travelling home early because of the weather. Simon nodded. What would you like, sir? The usual haircut? Simon rubbed his chin. Actually, I think I badly need a shave. Mr. Camille looked at him carefully. Simon clearly hadn't shaved for a few days, and he seemed tired. The barber tilted the chair backwards, and then, to soften the bristles, wrapped a hot, damp towel perfumed with sandalwood around Simon's face leaving his mouth clear. Ah, that's nice, said Simon after a while. Did you know that I'm a fortune teller, Mr. Camille? Is that so, sir? said Mr. Camille. The gentlemen often became quite talkative about their work when they relaxed. I thought you were a government computer expert or something. Yes, but really I'm a fortune teller. I do something called predictive analysis. My computers collect data from many different sources, then organise and crunch it. I interpret the results and make recommendations to the government about what they should do. Really, said Mr. Camille, as he started to make soap lather in a bowl with a shaving brush. Of course, it only works if your systems can recognise what is relevant data. Otherwise, you make mistakes. Garbage in, garbage out, as we say. Sounds very clever, sir. Mr. Camille removed the towel from Simon's face. Oh, not really. I make some assumptions about the subject and then drill down into the collected data till I find little gold nuggets of information. We call it data mining. Then the system does some statistical analysis, adds a bit of regression analysis, and you can see into the future. Anything you'd like to know, Mr. Camille? Mr. Camille laughed. Well, let me think. Um, hmm, um, I, I like to bet on the horses sometimes. Uh, who'll win at Cheltenham tomorrow? Just a moment. Simon pulled out a small tablet computer and was busy for the next five minutes. Puffin Billy, he said finally. You should place a bet. Odds are four to one at the moment. If this was an example of predictive analysis, Mr. Camille was not impressed. 
The sporting life had said exactly the same thing. He'd hoped for something more interesting, unusual. He began soaping Simon's cheeks and chin. I'll do that, sir, he said politely. He opened his traditional cutthroat razor and removed the soap and bristles from Simon's cheek. Well, I certainly hope so, said Simon. I've spent my whole life advising people to do intelligent things or not to do stupid things, but usually I'm ignored. Mr. Camille's razor ran across Simon's throat, leaving clean skin behind it. Take the Iraq war back in 2003, Simon continued. I warned the government it was going to be a disaster and we should keep out. They said it was a political necessity. Or take health. I told two governments that all the data showed we were going to bankrupt the National Health Service if we didn't reduce the amount of sugar in people's food. I was informed that my assumptions were wrong. Of course, the real reason nobody wanted to listen is because the fast food industry sponsors all the political parties. And what's happened now? Britain has the largest number of obese people in the European Union and our health service is collapsing under their weight. How ironic. One moment, sir, said Mr. Camille. Let me just shave your upper lip. He sliced away the bristles from under Simon's nose with two quick strokes and took a cool, damp towel and patted Simon's face clean. Currently, my big worry is flooding. I've warned the government again and again about making cuts to renovation work on the Thames Barrier and other flood defences for London, but all they talk about is saving money. Oh, yes. Mr. Camille could do these conversations on autopilot. The gentleman in his chair just wanted someone to listen to them. As long as you didn't disagree, they always gave you a good tip. Well, all this rain we've had in the last month has filled the River Thames, said Simon. So, if we had a big storm in the North Sea, as well as a high tide, and if something happened to the Thames barrier at the same time... Central London could be underwater in minutes. Oh my, said Mr. Camille, rubbing cologne into Simon's cheeks. Let's hope not, sir. That'll be £40, please. It was very windy when Mr. Camille left the shop an hour later, and he was glad to reach Green Park Tube Station. What a pessimist that Mr. Cassandra was. Flooding. Mr Camille had seen a report on the BBC about the Thames Barrier recently and it said that even with rising sea levels, London was perfectly safe. He caught the underground train to Waterloo and it was just after Westminster, underneath the river, when the train unexpectedly stopped and everything went dark. People turned on the lights on their phones to see what was happening and Mr Camille looked around feeling a bit nervous. Probably a technical problem, said one ghostly face. I'll be late getting home again tonight. A minute later, as water smashed through the windows and the screaming started, it was probably only Mr Camille who understood what had finally happened. Fortune Teller was written for Business Spotlight in 2016 and the setting uh, of the story 
this barber shop, Frederick Hobbs, is largely based on a barber shop called Trumpers. It's in Curzon Street, just behind Piccadilly. And when I was a small child, uh, I remember my father going to Trumpers once to have his hair cut and I went in and it was a very it was a very glamorous establishment. Barbershop mostly were fairly seedy unattractive places and when I was very small I can remember that they were one of the few places where people could buy condoms for example. Um, but the kind of shop that I describe in uh, in the story Frederick Hobbs um, is much uh, is much more attractive and Trumpers was really like that um, the going downstairs sitting in these uh, leather barbers chairs it was yeah really just like uh, how I describe it in the story I find it interesting now how barber shops are making something of a comeback in lots of major cities you have these barbershop these sort of hipster barbershops which have sprung up and trumpers was the real thing this is the kind of thing that they're modeled on so if you ever go to london i can strongly recommend that you go to trumpers and have a look at it the idea of london flooding has been something that has been a secret worry of mine, I suppose, for many years, and um, particularly the idea of being caught in the underground uh, should London ever flood, because the, if that ever happened and the Thames barrier was breached and uh, the circumstances that I describe in the story of a high tide and uh, storms and the waters flooding in up the Thames, um, yeah, that's what would happen to the central part of London. And it probably all goes back to uh, an English language course book, which I saw, which hypothesized on that particular uh, event happening. I think it was probably practicing the second conditional. If X happened, this would be the result. And I remember a particularly graphic picture that there was showing floodwaters uh, shooting down the escalators at station like Waterloo or something like that. Um, that's always been my uh, horror. The central character, Simon Cassandra, as uh, of course, as the name says, is somebody who has the misfortune of being able to predict the future, but nobody ever listens to him, like the Cassandra in the Greek mythology. But the, his speciality, predictive analysis, is something which I think is is really interesting. Can we predict the future based on the past? So to a certain extent, yes, we can. Um, but the problem always, of course, is the quality of the data going in. So garbage in, garbage out. And even then, even if you do have good material going in, what's to prevent the whole chaos theory and the butterfly wing in the Amazon disrupting tomorrow's events? So my f feeling is, is that as predictive analysis develops and becomes more and more uh, available to us, that we'll start to find that it's a little bit like the oracle in Delphi in the past, that we get obscure predictions which are actually kind of true, but they're likely to make, make people jump to false conclusions with catastrophic results. So I'm not convinced about predictive analysis. 
Of course, by saying that, um, perhaps I am also a victim of our age, an age where people are increasingly skeptical about experts. Now, probably governments are still guided by experts in the decisions that they make. But I would say that there's vastly more doubt about experts nowadays compared to the past. Um, and I think there are several reasons for this. Of course, first of all, you know, experts can be wrong, and there are enough examples of that. And we find out about this, and we find out about their mistakes because, of course, news spreads much faster than it ever did before. And secondly, we are we live in a society which is um, very much into polarization. And I think one of the reasons for this is that for anybody to establish themselves uh, as an expert themselves in a, in a particular field, what they need to do is to rubbish the work of their, their predecessors or their contemporaries. Um, so this means it's always easy to find contradictory opinions about almost em- um, everything. But nevertheless, experts get things right more often than not. And there are terrible consequences when expert advice is overruled, for example, for political considerations or for lobbying or because of irrational anxiety. And I mentioned one or two of them in the story. But I think one of the reasons for the success of the Brexit movement uh, was that it managed to terrify enough people to ignore every single expert who pointed out that it was going to be a disaster. And at the time, uh, during the referendum campaign there was an infamous quote by one of the leading brexiteers michael gove he said on television when asked about a prediction that it was going to be an economic catastrophe for britain Uh, and he said i think the people of this country have had enough of experts i think the suspicion of experts is also perhaps related culturally to the to an english suspicion of intellectuals and i think anglo-saxon cultures seem to have a deep suspicion of intellectuals i think it's about the only culture where describing somebody as an intellectual is an insult i think for example it's very interesting how even if you've got a doctorate you would never use your doctor title unless you were a medical doctor uh, whereas whereas it's perfectly normal to do so in germany or italy or france there was a very funny writer about the habits of the British, who was actually a Hungarian refugee who went to Britain in the 30s called George Mikesh. And he wrote a very funny book called How to Be a Brit. And he has this great quote in it. He says, on the continent, learned persons love to quote Aristotle, Horace, Montaigne, and show off their knowledge. In England, only uneducated people show off their knowledge Nobody quotes Latin and Greek in the course of a conversation unless he has never read them. Which, of course, goes to prove what I've always thought, that Boris Johnson, who loves to do that kind of thing, isn't actually British at all. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Bottom Line. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify or Google Podcast or whichever app you use so that as soon as the next episode is available, you'll get it. In the meantime, catch up on any episodes you've missed, tell your friends about the show, give it a rating and write a review on the podcast app. And you can write to me directly at james.rupert.schofield at gmail.com. Until the next episode of Behind the Bottom Line, this is James Schofield saying goodbye.